Welcome to episode two of the Zachtronics podcast, where we go behind the scenes and explore how indie games are made. I'm your host, Zach Barth, also the creative director at Zachtronics, and today with me is Brendan Chung, the studio head, the person behind Blendo Games. Uh, They've made a bunch of games, you've made a bunch of games, including 30 Flights of Loving and the upcoming Quadrilateral Cowboy, or Quad Cow, as I like to call it. Yes. So um, basically the format of this is that we're going to talk about the the behind the scenes of what you do and sort of the the premise the idea behind this all is that uh since i also make indie games uh, i know questions that no one else would ever think to ask of you and uh, so hopefully we can really get into some nitty-gritty stuff uh you know really talk about times that you totally fucked up and what you did about it and uh it's, it's gonna be great so you ready i am ready zach awesome so I, my first question for you sort of alluded to this a little bit in my uh awesome intro do you work alone how does how does that work? Um, yeah, I mean, I I do the design, the programming, and the art, and all the business stuff. Um, I was working with another level designer for about six months on Quadrilateral Cowboy, uh, but not at the moment. And I do have people who do, uh, like, I work with Aaron Melcher, and he does the porting work. Um, and I have a bunch of friends who do, like, playtesting and stuff. But in terms of the more... In terms of right now, uh, yeah, I am the, the, the sole creative person on the project. Cool. What's your background? Uh, you mean like in school? Or? Sure. Uh, let's see. In school, I studied film. I was a film student. Um, I knew I wanted to do games, but at that time, there was no game program. And so I decided to learn about something that I was also interested in, which is you know learning about how to make short videos and make little um uh little uh, little film projects did you get a degree in film uh it's in visual arts with okay. an emphasis in film but yeah okay and where did you go to school i went to school at uc san diego oh cool so you're from california i am okay. i'm an la native cool um so how did you get into how did you get into making games i mean if it wasn't directly through school uh it was when i was really young um uh, I got into PC games, so I had this really old XT computer, and <laughs> it had a directory just full of games on it, like you know, Dig Dug and Root Beer Tapper and Alley Cat, and from there that kind of led to Doom, and Doom kind of opened the doors to level design and how to like make your own games and mods, and that kind of paved the way for what I am doing right now. So how did you make the the leap from? I mean, did you make Doom mods or levels? I guess. Yeah, yeah, a ton. Um, yeah, walk me through the the quick history of how you got to Quadrilateral Cowboy from playing <laughs> Doom. Right, right. Um, yeah, so I mean, at that time, I was into like I was into three things. I was into uh, Doom level editing. I was really into Q Basic, um, which was kind of at that time was. I was played a lot of gorillas dot bass <laughs> and nibbles dot bass. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, a program called Autodesk Animator, which was uh, a animation program made by Autodesk, where it was like three twenty by two hundred, and you kind of did a really old school frame by frame animations. Um, and then from there, I just really got into first person. Um, game design and how to like how to make levels for it and how to make 
how to kind of try to tell little stories through it. It was kind of, it was an interesting experience because at that time, I think this was like elementary school, maybe sixth grade or so. And I was really into Doom and I was really into trying to tell some sort of narrative or premise through the game. Um, and Doom is not made for that. Doom <laughs> is made for just like blowing away Kako demons. Yeah. So what did you make? Thing. How did you tell a story? Or did you? I, I tried. I tried so hard. My elementary school Brendan tried really hard. Um, the one I remember is that um, uh, it's like you, you approach this door in this abandoned base and um, you press a button to open it. There's a button next to the door. You press the button, and then the button light goes on, then the button light goes off. And the idea was that um, you know, the door is busted. So then you, you use the door itself, and then the door opens. So in my mind, I had this like really <laughs> brilliant idea. I was like, oh, the door is busted. So therefore, you interact with the door, and you're like, kind of imagine using a crowbar or, you know, pulling it open with your bare hands. Um, but then when people actually played it, it just felt like a bug. Because, <laughs> like, oh, the button doesn't work. But then, like, somehow the door is a button, and then, you know, the door opens the door itself. Um, and, yeah, that was my attempt. <laughs> it was pretty sad. Yeah. But, you I know, mean, you had to do tell- it. Narrative in games is difficult, you know? I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It is really yeah. difficult. Oh, that's yeah. funny. So how did you, I mean, so, how, yeah, I mean, obviously your games now are much more effective at telling stories, yet made in similarly antiquated game engines, from what I understand. <laughs> um, so how did, how did you make that leap? I mean, it's years later, and you're still, I mean, you, I guess you, you used the Quake engine for some of, like, 30 Flights of Loving? Was it Quake 2? Yeah, 30 Flights was Quake 2. So still kind of modding, you know, like, old-school first-person shooters. But yeah, how, how did you make the leap to 30 Flights of Loving? Um... Or Gravity Bone, like the, right, that sort of set of right. games. Uh, so between those two, I did a really large amount of maps for Quake 2, um, you know, like mods for Quake 2 with the, the Strogos aliens and the uh, Space Marine things and a lot of Half-Life stuff. Um and I think a lot of these were more uh, kind of more traditional first-person run-and-gun games where you run around, you shoot aliens, you get keys. Um, but I, as I think the game that kind of was influential in kind of showing me what games could do was uh, Looking Glass Studios Thief. Okay. Um, and after I played that, I kind of it kind of flipped a switch for me in that oh wait you know not every game has to be about running around with a shotgun and shooting things in the face um it could be about different types of characters it could be about kind of uh exploring a world and not being about direct combat all the time um and I think that as I kept on making more and more first person stuff uh, the, the the flavor of what I was what I was trying to do kind of started leaning heavily more in that direction, and I did, like Gravity Bone is kind of uh, 
a bit of an endpoint of that. And when I, did you make Gravity Bone? Gravity Bone was two thousand eight. Okay. Okay, um, so that's fairly recent. I mean, that's. Yeah, yeah, and my my early early Quake Two stuff was like nineteen ninety nine or so. So it's about <laughs> a little bit earlier. Okay, well, you've so you, you've really been. In, I I didn't realize how big of a role like level design and I guess really level design played in in your history of becoming a game developer. So we'll have to talk about level design tips later on. When sure. We get to the, yeah. the design section. That's really fascinating. Um, so okay, <laughs> this is a, a Blendo Games question. It's the only one that we could come up with in the office, which is, what is the story behind Nuevo Aries? <laughs> Keith really wanted to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, so something that I like to do in my games is to have all of them kind of take place in the same um, universe. So all the games kind of take place in the same place. Um, they're all generally in the same time era, but they kind of jump around various decades around it. Um, like if you play um, 30 Flights of Loving, you'll the first room you start in, there's some newspaper clippings on the wall. And if you read them, you'll, you'll find that they refer to events that happened during Adam Zombie Smasher. <laughs> What's the, oh, the, the quick chronological order of your, your games? Not when you made them, but in the universe. Right, right. Um, let's see. So 30 Flights is definitely after Adam Zombie Smasher. Flotilla is... Oh, shoot. I have this in a doc somewhere, but I don't have it up right now. <laughs> you have to send it to me later. And we yeah, can post it I think Flotilla is yeah. before Adam Zombie Smasher. Because Adam Zombie Smasher, they have you know space, space technology and all that such. Um, but yeah, it's something like that. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the question at Novus Eris. Um, I think just that that tumultuous um, kind of Banana Republic setting kind of opens the door for a lot of um, lots of interesting stories. I think yeah. um, it definitely fits with sort of the heist kind of the spy heist motif. The yeah. Sexy 60s kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, there's this, this kind of like timeless 60s, 70s kind of flavor that the games have yeah. that, that kind of just kind of fits that setting really well. Cool. Okay, um, let's talk about some technical stuff. A um, couple categories, a couple directions we can go in. You can pick where you want to start. There's programming, art, design, business. Uh, let's do programming. Okay, so how do you, I mean, how do you create your games? Mm, what do you mean? Like... Like, technical-wise, like, uh, do you... I mean, we, you know, we mentioned a little bit before, for some of them, you use the Quake engine, and uh, with a background is, like, a, a modder that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like, let's talk about QuadCow, for instance. Sure, right. Um, so, yeah, I stick with the id software engines a lot. Um, so 30 Flights use Quake 2, Gravity uh, Mode use Quake 2, and now Quadrilot Cowboy uses Doom 3. Um... And I I have a fondness for the id software text because you know well I mean I grew up using it as a as a kid in elementary school and junior high and high school, um, and so I'm just I feel pretty familiar with the tech. Um, the other part of it is that it's free and it's open source, um, and for me there's something there's something that I like about having tech that I have complete access to complete control over um, do you use that complete control often 
I mean, I can't really say because I can't really compare it to... I haven't made other first-person games that have not used open source engines. Um, but I guess for me, there's something comforting in knowing that if if there is something I want to change, there the only thing that's stopping me from doing it is myself. Interesting. I don't. Are you, I mean, those are all written in C plus plus. It's kind of hardcore, like in the the realm of things that you could be programming. Would it be editing the the Doom three engine in C plus uh, plus? Is that something that you do a lot of? Uh, like I mean, C++ programming or yeah, I'm a self-taught programmer, so programming is kind of something that, um, like if like I I will never be able to write uh, a three engine from scratch. Um, yeah. But I feel comfortable enough that if there is a problem, I kind of have the patience to sit with it long enough that I will eventually find some way to do it, even if it's not the most elegant way. Um, and there's something about that that I like and that, you know, at, at no point will, is it a black box that I don't have access to? At no point am I at the mercy of, um, you know, someone else making a decision that, oh, we're just going to change this tech at some point and then you have no control over. Um, and I guess there's just something about that I like. It's the, I don't know. I don't know if it's kind of unreasonable, but I would just like that feeling. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That's I think that's one of the main perks of running an indie studio is that you can do whatever you want as long as you can financially get away with it. Yeah. And, uh, and it can be freeing. It can be it can be satisfying sometimes. So at the risk of sounding like every indie developer ever, have you ever considered using Unity? <laughs> I have. I'm sure everyone suggests it to you. For sure, yeah. Everybody I mean... in the world who makes indie games suggests that you use Unity for everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the uh, here in LA, I work at a shared office called Glitch City, where a bunch of independent developers and I work at. And I think I think just about everyone, with the exception <laughs> of like a couple of teams, pretty much use Unity. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm surrounded by it all day long, and it's it's clearly a really strong piece of tech. Um, but I guess for me, yeah, I mean, this is this might be just. This might sound unreasonable to some people, but I guess I like knowing that 20 years from now that I will have complete control over this tech and that, you know, if someone stops, decides to stop supporting it someday, um, that's not something that I'll have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's not a lot of support for Doom 3, but it's not going to change anytime soon. So Right. Exactly. There's it's something reliable about that for sure. It's out in the wild and you know, it's if people want to improve on it, they can. And I like that. Cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I'm going to bump over to art now. So uh, you talked about your film background, right? And I think obviously that, that really plays a, an important role in your games. Uh, the one that comes to mind the most would be 30 flights of loving and how it uses the sort of like film cuts, which I've never seen another game do ever. <laughs> um, like, what are your artistic inspirations and influences for your games? You know, film or non-film. Um, yeah, I I grew up reading a lot of comic books. I grew up watching a lot of movies, um, and I grew up playing a lot of games. Uh, and I guess for me, the the trick that I try to, well, the approach that I try to take is that, um. If, if you're making a game, it has to be about interactivity. Um, like I think, I think when a lot of people kind of 
think about cinematic games they kind of oh it's, it's going to be like a movie and so you watch these really cool cutscenes or um you watch this really really beautifully choreographed thing and for me i i feel that i i I want to try really hard to make sure that none of that comes at the expense of giving the player the uh, opportunity to let go of the mouse and keyboard and just sit back and watch the screen. To me, that is a huge red flag. Um, that's something that when, when I do that, when I'm playing a game and I like, oh, the game doesn't no longer needs my input anymore, um, I, that, I kind of start tuning out immediately um so it's it is a big challenge because you're you're trying to get these interesting moments that you want the player to see and experience um but the the darn human has to keep on controlling <laughs> the darn thing um yeah. and so it's trying to that's that's for me is the big uh kind of the fun of trying to make this thing work yeah that's a problem that i run into a lot because uh, i read a lot of fiction and mm -hmm. i always you know, fiction is full of lots of lofty ideas and stories. And I always think, oh, I want to do something like that. I want to make this game have a story like a William Gibson novel. And it's it's very, you really can't do the same kind of stuff in a game as you can in a novel. Like, they're completely different. And it's it's yeah. hard when all your influences are from these different, you know, different just different kinds of media entirely. Right. Uh, it can be difficult to port it over. And then you see people kind of put these giant walls of text in the game. And yeah, exactly. Not the way to do it. <laughs> I mean, uh... Feel, I don't know. It's like their intentions are good, and mm -hmm. like they're clearly taken from really interesting places. And and maybe if that game was a book instead, it would be really really amazing. Um, but yeah, trying to integrate all those ideas that you're talking about into a way, you know, that that keeps you in control of the game is really hard. Do you have any specific influences that have sort of managed to cut through? Any directors or? Yeah, I mean, when when I when I was young, um, during the mid '90s or so, there was kind of this boom of American independent cinema, and that kind of independent cinema boom kind of was something that um, kind of inspired me to to think that maybe I can make it also. Um, like at that time, independent games was not a thing. Uh, well, I mean, it's not what it is right now. Yeah. Um, and so, but but it kind of gave me the inspiration that, oh, maybe I can like make my own small little mod projects. Maybe um, my little mod, pro my little personal projects can be a thing also. Because like when you look at the, the, the budgets that these early directors work with, like, um, like directors like uh, Tarantino and um, Robert Rodriguez and Richard Linklater, and these these directors had you know they had nothing, um, but they made something that was really special and like really connected with me and other people. Um, and like I was thinking like, well, I mean, if they had nothing and they made something work, maybe I could do something also. And um, yeah, and I guess that kind of that that spirit kind of goes on to today. That's cool. I mean, you were definitely, I would, it seems like you were sort of in the, the first wave of indie developers. You know, you didn't decide to start making indie games because you saw that other people were making indie games and making huge sums of money, like we all do, I'm sure, <laughs> you know. And uh, you, you came to it from that sort of, you know, seeing other people doing independent things. That's that's very interesting. It's funny, I was uh, 
I was at a uh, oh god an opening of a an exhibit at a museum in Seattle that was about indie games, and I met two uh, twins actually. They were they make uh, videos, they make movies, and like very low budget things. And it was funny because they were actually drawing a lot from the indie space for making their videos. <laughs> like the ways that you know people manage to monetize indie games are all these crazy things that have been developed, like Kickstarter and um, and, and sort of you know kind of trying to draw back from that into to film which is really interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, I like that. So your your games have a sort of a a unique art style. Very geometric. Um very, I I don't how would you describe your <laughs> your 3D model art style? Uh it's low poly. It's <laughs> it's very affordable. Yeah, it's yeah. Very, <laughs> low budget. Yeah, um so I used to work in uh AAA for about 5 years prior to starting Blendo Games. What did you do there? I was a level designer. Oh, imagine that. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> um and and one of the things that I I tried to and so it, it was it was a big learning process of, you know, seeing how all the departments worked with each other and seeing you know what were the roadblocks and what who was waiting on what. And one of the things that I wanted to make sure of was that like I can't I can't do a good job at everything. Like I see it as like having a bunch of buckets and you have a limited amount of water and I can only fill a certain amount of buckets. Like I could fill the design bucket, I could fill the the story bucket, but that leaves me with no water for other things. And so for me, I kind of try to make a conscious decision to make the art, um, to try to make it on the cheap as much as I can, but still make it as 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 attractive as my budget allows. And I, when I say budget, I don't mean like money. I mean like my time and my energy. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so for me, like the art is is low poly. I mean, sure, like low poly is kind of a thing now, and is kind of yeah. an in style. Yeah. Um. But I think I think back in two thousand eight, like I was making low poly because. Uh, and I wanted to ship my things. I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to not be stuck in development hell for, you know, a billion years. Um, and I, so, I think yeah, I, I really like your art style because it definitely it definitely looks cheap, not in a bad way, but it looks, you know, from as a developer, it looks like an affordable art style, but it looks very stylized and it, it it's very effective. You know, you can create these characters that manage to convey emotion. They're very, you know, highly geometric, very abstract, but they still fun- they function very well. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, like my first, my first instinct was like, well, I mean, I love art and I love making art, so I'm gonna make really elaborate, complex art. And so I actually did try making really um, detailed, proportional human beings for a long time. And I just could not get it to look right. Like my 3D modeling skills are, they're fine for like machines and cars and stuff, but for organic things like people, I, I was having a really tough time. Um, and so one day I got really, really just fed up with it. And just, I just couldn't, <laughs> I just couldn't hack it. So I just made a giant cube as a, more of a joke. Uh, and the joke kind of stuck i guess and the it ended up looking much better than i kind of unexpectedly working really well for me that's really cool so do you so you've done 
like for all of your games, you've done all the art just you, like including like uh, Flotilla, the little animal pictures and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I do the two D okay. art also. Interesting. Um, so does your your background in I guess not just film but visual art in general is that something you use? Because I, I didn't I didn't I, I knew that you had a background in film, but I didn't realize that it was possibly more broad for visual arts, and that sort of explains why all your games have quite good art, you know, for uh... being a one man shop. It's not really that broad. <laughs> I, I mainly focused on on film stuff in college. Okay. Um, I wish well, I had, you learned something. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had drummer broad, but it looks uh, way better than if I had done all the art. <laughs> that is not my thing. Uh, yeah. Wait. So, yeah. so you do? You're you're the designer programmer. Exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I I'm you know I'm I'm confident at programming and in game design and yeah. I kind of hack it at the business stuff, but. I am. I just can't do anything arts, artistic art. I, it's not not remotely something I can do. I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes you very unique as a developer is that um, you, you're very competent at all at all of the disciplines that are required to make a game. And that's there's not many people who can effectively you know run a one man shop like that without taking some serious sacrifices. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a discussion thing that some people and I have talked about. Is that like people can get good at programming? Is the same also true for other fields? Like, can a non-artistic person become good at art? Oh, that's interesting. Or, you know, I don't know. It's it's. I don't think there's a well, right answer to that. There's the theory that everyone who's good at stuff is just because they've been doing it for a long period of time, like the ten thousand hours. Mm. You know, but whether that's true, I, I don't know. Um, so if you I start. Only... If you start drawing now, and ten years from yeah. now, you'll be this amazing artist. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the theory at least. They, they, uh, there's a book I forget who wrote it, but um, a, a book basically a guy who does all those like kind of pop science books that are on the the New York Times bestseller list. But the idea that you know what makes someone a great musician is just that they've practiced a bunch. Uh, right. One of the, the the arguments I've heard against this is that yes, yeah, somebody might be an expert, but they might not be inspired. But mm. whether you could judge that or whether that means anything, I'm not I'm not sure. I don't know if it matters, honestly. <laughs> You've clearly been doing it long enough that you're doing quite okay. Um, so I'm going to move away from art, unless you have anything else uh, no. that you really wanted to get in there. Um, um, I did have something I want to mention, though. I forgot okay. to mention during the when you were talking about the programming, is that for, for stuff that is not first person, mm-hmm. I, tend mm, to, yeah, yeah. I tend to just roll my own C-sharp engines. Okay. You used XNA, right, for uh, Flotilla? I used least. XNA, yes, for, for Flotilla. Um, and then past that, I started using the SFML engine. Okay, yeah. Um, which is really wonderful. It's really great. Um, you would love Unity then. That's what we, we've rolled all of our own game engines in C Sharp and OpenGL, okay. but we just switched to Unity for Infinifactory. And uh. there's a couple like kind of technically specific cons, but it's been pretty great overall. Okay. I, I'm, I am... 80% satisfied with it, which is better than zero. So, so why, why, why did you choose to switch to Unity as opposed to rolling your own stuff? We wanted to do something that made use of a lot of kind of 3D, modern 3D game boilerplate, loading models, loading animations, mm. uh, 3D rendering, shadows. Um, a lot of the stuff we've learned really isn't that hard, and you don't necessarily need to take on sort of all of the, the baggage of Unity. Right. Um, 
from experience the load honestly the part that's probably still my favorite is the loaders right because that's the code that ugh, in the past we have struggled trying to get 3d stuff in like it's just not as easy as you think it ought to be mm-hmm. and uh, and unity just makes it all really easy i don't know I, I i really like c sharp i'm a firm believer that it's the greatest programming language ever invented <laughs> but uh yeah if you like it i don't know you should try it out for your next game maybe i don't know it's up to you but <laughs> we I mean- can talk about that later if you want Sure. <laughs> you could talk you could talk to literally any other indie developer out there and they'd be love they would be more than happy to talk to you about about Unity, I'm sure of it. Yeah. I, I guess just for me, like I know that, that there's this there is a huge there is a, a stigma uh, amongst certain circles that writing your own game engines is kind of a big no no. Oh for um, sure. Because it kind of is. Yeah. It's, yeah. That, that you're you could writing, be making a game. You're writing tech as opposed to writing a game and you want to ship a game, not tech. Yeah. Um but for me, there's something about, like, I like having a piece of tech that's constantly growing. Like, the Blendo engine, the, 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 the engine that I wrote for, for uh, Flotilla is not the same tech that I'm using for um, Adam's Only Smasher. But, I mean, it's the same code base, but it's, it's so much more better. And the next game that I make with that tech is going to be even better than the... Um, Adam Zombie Smasher because it's building on top of it and it's kind of fixing bugs, it's adding new things. Um, and so for me, when people say like, "Oh, you're running tech as opposed to running new game engine," I kind of see it as that you're just adding small little pieces a little bit at a time. I'm not like dumping out the entire engine every single time. Yeah, that's um, true. And especially if you're starting with something like the the Doom engine, I mean, there's a lot, you're getting all you're, you're getting a lot of the stuff that Unity provides you. So uh, you right, get to use right. C sharp if you used Unity. Then. That's true. <laughs> that's a good point. But yeah, yeah, I just, oh. just want to mention that. Okay, yeah, no, that's that's good information. So quick fault question. Do you use version control? Um I do now. Yes, please say yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, for my first game Flotilla, I did not. And <laughs> the other side of that is that Flotilla was also um one giant file. What? No, no, wait, I'm sorry, not Flotella, but my previous Adam Zombie Smasher prototype prior to that was, oh, okay. was one enormous file. Dear uh, God. <laughs> yeah, so don't do that either. <laughs> I, I had last time on the first episode, I had the guys who made Kingdom of Loathing on. Yes. And they made the mistake of telling me that they don't use version control. Oh. <laughs> and I started ranting. So you, you saved me from having to do that. I mean, it's very, it's very important. I I do it because. Well, I mean, I, it's, <laughs> you're not a monster. It's, it's only because after I went to, after I worked at Pandemic, uh, when I was doing AAA work, I kind of learned what version control was. And that's where it's like, oh, this is, I didn't know this concept existed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think that if not for that, I might not be doing it because like, I, I wasn't shown the light. <laughs> It's yeah no I mean it's you're not born knowing how to use version control right yeah. like it's not like when you learn how to program it it automatically makes sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely <laughs> um, okay we're gonna talk about game design so we're at, like the halfway mark sure um, when you design a game what comes first so some possible answers just to give you a realm of kind of what I'm talking about you know some people they start with a business decision saying oh it would be smart of us to make this so we could make money right uh, some people start with a, a story fragment or sort of a like a, a vision of a player experience or a set of mechanics where do you start right I mean it is it is a little bit of everything um, I I do I do want to stay in business so like. <laughs> what people whether this game is sellable or not is something that i do consider but i think for me the in terms of design the big part 
that I want is kind of what is the player's um, what what role will the player play in this game? Like for Adam Zombie Smasher, the role for that game was kind of you're the you're the person in this secluded orbital bunker making these hard decisions, <laughs> and so that's kind of like this this weird role playing thing that you do um, for Gravity Bone in Thirty Fights. You're kind of like this. this quasi spy criminal person and you kind of trying to fulfill fill in those shoes and how does that feel um so it's all about kind of finding what experience uh will 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 be fun to kind of explore in this game that's interesting i think this is something that took us a long time to figure out me in particular is i always used to think about it in terms of you know like where like what happens in the Mm -hmm. game you know, what's the story? And that's really like that sort of novel, you know, mindset, which is not very productive for games. And instead thinking about what you just described, which is, you know, whose shoes are you filling? Who, you know, who is the player going to be, not what's going to happen to them? Yeah. Right? I, think that, I think your question is a much more effective starting point than, than sort of my novel-based one. It took me a really long time to realize that that was not a, a good way to think about it because it doesn't lead you to thinking about interactions that the player does or just any kind of gameplay that happens to the player, you know? I mean, it seems kind of like, it seems like a pretty thin line between the two things though, isn't it? I mean, what I, you're talking I, about is more like the story stuff or? I, I guess, but I mean, like it's the whole, like what makes, I think like, you know, the, the thing that really makes games games. And I think the thing that's important is thinking about what is the player going to be doing and then making sure that like the actions they take line up with the the motives of you know some sort of agent in the story, mm-hmm. and and really thinking about just focusing on what who the player is and what they do is a much more successful starting point. I think yeah. that was that was the lesson that I learned. It might still be wrong. <laughs> no, I mean I feel the same way. I, I mean I kind of feel that it kind of ping pongs between um, the 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 premise and the story and all that, and what does the player actually do? Because I know like some people kind of come come mechanics first. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I do find, that a lot too. Yeah, and I, mean, I think that's totally valid. But I think that that works for me is kind of bouncing between the two places. Like um, the the premise kind of influences the mechanics, mm, and yes, the mechanics yes. kind of push the story in certain ways. That is um, absolutely how we do it too. And I think that's why I like your game so much is because it really feels like the mechanics and the story and the premise are really tightly coupled, and that they they draw from each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I when I was oh God, I, I had the privilege of uh, of seeing this talk at, at PaxDev a couple years ago, mm. and it was by somebody who created not video games but board games, mm. and they specifically worked on board games for licensed properties, which Ooh. sounds like a horrible talk, right? <laughs> oh, it's the guy who made the Lord of the Rings board game. Oh boy, but it was actually the most amazing talk I've ever seen at something like that because he talked about how using the story as a source of inspiration for game mechanics, that when your game is broken and you need a mechanic that can achieve a certain thing to rebalance it, looking at the story and think, like, how would the story solve this problem? Mm. And this is sort of in a, like a, as an alternative to the more like the, like the German board games. Right. Where, like, somebody clearly came up with a set of rules <laughs> and at the last minute slapped a story onto it. You know, like, oh, yeah. you're on Caribbean islands and trading <laughs> slaves? Like, oh, we're good. You know, it's like, no, call them something else. You know, colonists. I don't know. That's the, what was that? Oh, God, now I can't remember what game I'm making fun of. But, yeah, like, clearly, like, they, you know, they, they slap a theme on. And I, I don't think that works as well. I mean, I, I really, my, my style of design is very much coming up with the premise and then drawing mechanics from it, you know, because it, 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 it works yeah. for me. Gives you a lot of inspiration. That's cool. Um, so, what's the worst game mechanic you've ever put into a game and like shipped? Mm. 
Mm. Aside from your little door puzzle. <laughs> uh, the worst game mechanic I ever shipped. I mean, there's a ridiculous amount that I haven't shipped. Um, okay. If you can't think of any, you could tell me one that you uh, you didn't ship because you're yeah, a sensible game designer. I mean... <laughs> I'm definitely, I, I mean, I, there's definitely, my games have a, a ridiculous amount of flaws in them, but I think for me, the big one that I'm thinking of is that, um, actually, no, I'll, I'll go back to your original question. I like your original question more. The one that actually <laughs> shipped. I think for me, my something that I would love to change if I ever made a follow-up is the story stuff in Flotilla. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those who haven't played Flotilla, the, the way the story stuff worked was that it's, you have a big galaxy map and you visit different planets. Um, and then whenever you visit a planet, it kind of pulls a random story card from a deck. Um, and then the, the, the story card will say, like, oh, you found, uh, you found, uh, uh, the, the leader of the casino and he wants you to pay back his debts or something like that. Um, and then you'll get two choices. Like, do you want to punch them in the face or do you want to run away? <laughs> and then those two branches will kind of influence later. They'll, they'll either lock out certain cards in the deck or they will bring in new cards into the deck, the story deck. Um, and I was really interested, I was in, really interested in like procedural generation of, you know, the storyline and all that. It's, it's something I was really into and I'm still into. But um, what happens though is that you play it and say, like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. And like, uh, I got this interesting storyline this time. Um, but then the, the gag is that after um, a certain amount of playthroughs, you just start seeing the same story cards over again. Um, just because there's not that many to draw from? I mean, I felt there was a fair amount of them. But I guess my, my running theory is that no matter how many you do, with this type of structure, you're kind of dooming yourself into that after X amount of games. It might be a small amount of games, or maybe mm, if you yeah. have more decks, you'll just have more. But yeah. regardless of that, the inevitable conclusion is that you'll just start redoing the same yeah. threads. You're going to run out of content eventually. Yeah, and then you'll just like, oh, okay, I just remember exactly how to do this one. And the game kind of, the game kind of dies after a while. I mean, it yeah. just becomes this thing that's no longer... I'm maybe shouldn't say dies, but it grows into something that I don't want to play anymore. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's something we run into with every one of our games. Oh, really? is that, <laughs> yeah, mean? just content. It's always a problem. Some games uh, are worse than others. Uh, there's a the guys from Spry Fox did an article about evergreen games, so games that truly don't require more content to to keep playing them. I guess like Bejeweled would be a good example, or right. uh, Triple Town. I think was their was their example that they were applying it to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, and, that's kind of what I feel is kind of the the holy grail for for this type of game is how to get these handwritten stuff um but somehow give permutations of them so that i mean you know spelunky has spike traps but if you put them next to um the yeti then it suddenly becomes something very different if you put them mm. next to the anti-gravity thing then it suddenly becomes something very different um and so for me my kind of end goal for for this type of storytelling is to somehow i don't know somehow give the story cards like some sort of conditions or some sort of like uh modifiers like sunless sea is a really interesting evolution of of 
kind of this this type of storytelling. Have you played? Have you had a chance to play some of this? No, not yet. Yeah, it's really wonderful. It's it's like you visit different islands, and then each island has kind of this these handwritten story bits attached to them. Um, but the one of the brilliant things that they do is that um, options uh, attached to that story card are kind of locked and unlocked through more systemic things, such as the amount of fuel that you have, the amount of cargo, or what specific cargo you have in your boat. Or what um, you know, what other cards that you've seen? Interesting. Um, so your like your your gameplay state informs what the story events are more so. Right. Yeah. So it's this really interesting blend of handwritten story things and systemic things, and so it kind of gives that freshness that that the this type of storytelling needs. I think. Interesting. The thing you, your Splunky example really hits on something that we've been discussing a lot here, which is that you know the idea of. These narrative stories tend to be sort of everything is planned out, which makes it so, you know, people, they depend like 100% on the content that you've added to the game for novelty. And since it's very, especially on a small budget, it's difficult to create an unlimited amount of content. Um, You know, people end up sort of hitting that that novelty wall, and then there's nothing interesting beyond that. Mm. But when a game has, you know, sort of procedurally generated game mechanics, uh, a large portion of the, like, the story becomes, it transitions from being a, I guess it depends on what game it is, but the story transitions from being just a, a narrative thing that was already written to the player's actual experience of playing the game, like in more of a sandboxy kind of game. Right. And it opens up way more story potentials because the story isn't just something that you came up with, but it's sort of this performance that the player did, and there's so many more possibilities, there's so many more opportunities for things to emerge that... You know, you end up with something that's far more, you know, like a far more open-ended story than any traditional quote-unquote narrative could really have. And I mean, you look at like uh, uh, the people who did Bioshock, you know, they, they sort of shut down. They, they turned into a much smaller studio and they're, they're trying to do a, you know, like I guess from what I've been able to gather from things they've said, like a, a really procedurally generated narrative game. But that really seems like the hard way to do it. You know, I mean, there's tons of people out there making these, these these games where people are having all sorts of crazy stories happen to them. And it's because it's done through gameplay and it's done through emergent gameplay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry, that was kind of long-winded. <laughs> definitely. I mean, that's, that's something that I'm really interested in because after, like, I, I enjoy making uh, 30 Flights of Loving and Gravity Bone. Um, but I feel that this type of really heavily authored game um, at least for a team of my size i could only do this really type of heavily authored game um on a really small scale yeah because people keep on like 30 flights of loving and gravity bone are very short games and so yeah. a, a common piece of feedback i get is i wish you made like a long version of this like a cool i don't know three four hour thing and I love that idea, but I don't know if I have the, you know, the bandwidth to do that. I, yeah, I don't know absolutely. If physically possible for me to do that. <laughs> I could spend the next 20 years doing that game. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, do you make any design decisions based on metrics or any other kind of feedback? Like not just people telling you stuff, but any kind of information flowing back to you from your players? Um, I mean, I do a lot of play testing. Do you do um, like local play testing, like you over the shoulder watching people? Yeah, yeah. I find I find local play testing to be the most helpful for me. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on what stage of the game you're in. I find yeah, that yeah, definitely. Like when you're when the game is still kind of amorphous blob state, 
watching them over the shoulder and seeing like oh they they have not clicked on the button for the for the last 10 minutes um that's something that i feel that i could kind of only see that or i had the most chances of seeing that if i'm over the shoulder um because i if you if you send a bill to someone and you tell ask them to like oh I'd, I'd love to get your feedback um you'll get you'll get really good feedback but you'll also get feedback that um because that person doesn't know what the game is trying to be yeah i feel and what will you do <laughs> They'll give you feedback about the stuff that they ended up understanding, which makes it impossible then for them to report anything they didn't understand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's still useful, but I feel that it's more useful to actually be there. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. The, the flip side of that is that when, when the game is almost feature complete or pretty much like ready to ship, that's when, you know, that's when the game is... That's when the game really should be saying everything that it needs to say. And so if the people don't get it, then you have a serious problem. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's see, what should we go talk about next? Oh, you want to talk about business? Sure. It's business time? Yeah. It's business time. Um, how, how do you make money? <laughs> <laughs> how, how are you still in business? Yeah. Um, well, I'm a small team. I'm okay, that person, helps, definitely. So my costs are very, very low. That is true. <laughs> um, I mean, I do work at a shared office, so I, I kind of do have an office now, but we we'll share mm-hmm. it amongst like... Uh, I think it's just like twelve or thirteen of us now. So, oh, wow. I mean, that's not that's not a huge drain on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, my 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 business model, if you want to call it that, is yeah. I <laughs> I make a game, I sell it online, um, on my website and on Steam and maybe some other channels. Um, and the money I get from that funds my next game. So it's a very I think that, that's a business that's model. A that's such an indie word. answer. I guess you could call it a business model. I don't have an MBA or anything, but uh, but I mean, it's if you yeah. were to show it to a business person, I feel that they would laugh at me. <laughs> I guess that's why I say that. Here's my business plan. I'm going to make a game, and I'm going to make an, I'm going to make enough money for ramen so I can make another game and do that for the rest of my life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. pretty goofy. Um, so we talked. You talked a little bit about you brought a level designer on for six months for for Quadrilateral Cowboy. I did. Yeah. Um, do you ever? I mean, I guess you really don't use any. You don't have any employees. I'm guessing. No, no, I don't. Um, I do like contract or I do contract work for or I do contract out for like people doing porting work and such. Oh yeah. Has it, so like what what platforms are you talking about for porting? Uh, so for Quadrilateral Cowboy, it's gonna be on PC, Mac, and Linux. Oh, okay. Yeah. Duh. Okay. Yeah. So, so aside from PC, right. I mean, right. See, as somebody who uses Unity, all I have to do is push <laughs> one button and make builds for all the platforms. After we spent months figuring out how to get it to actually work, I get it, Zach. Yeah. I love Unity. It's. Uh, I'm just kidding. It wasn't even that easy. We spent a long time figuring out how to like fixing Linux only bugs and Mac only bugs. Probably not uh-huh. as much time as you have to spend porting C plus plus to other platforms, but it's still it's always a challenge. Yeah. 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 Well, Do you yeah. see a lot of sales on Mac and Linux? Uh, I don't, not really. Um, I mean, part of that, I feel, is that it's kind of like the thing where if you don't actually use it, it doesn't really become really that great. Like, what do you mean? Um, like, at, like at, a, at a games company, if, you don't, if you're not the person using the tools, you sometimes don't really have the... Mm, I see. The incentive to make the tools really amazing. 
because you're not the one using it. If it crashes all the time, yeah. then whatever. So you don't um, you don't run Linux. So. so I don't really use Linux, and I don't really use Mac. I do all my development on PC, and mm-hmm. so I feel sometimes my you know if if I don't use them, they'll work and you know they'll function. But beyond that, they're not really anything to to be that. You know they'll they they function, and that's yeah. kind of the, the purpose. But you I mean you do take the effort to to have at least have somebody else do the porting work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean I, you pay them, or do they do it for? No, they yeah, love yeah. You they, they are paid. Okay, um, yeah. So it, it makes enough business sense to do that. I think we see about like ten percent of our sales come from Mac mm-hmm. on Steam, just kind of on average. And Linux is just a charity case. <laughs> we do not see a lot of sales from that. But the humble bundle is is all about Linux, or at least they they were. Right. So that, that that's always a nice card to be able to play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. I want to support other platforms. I, yeah, I don't. It want... can be challenging, honestly. I, Linux Linux can be difficult to support just because there's so many different options, uh... and there's so few people that the problems that people run into, you know, it's 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 so easy to see like a, a problem that I've never seen before. But I guess on the flip side, there's not that many people using it, so it's not like they eat up a bunch of our support bandwidth. How do you handle support? Um, I do it myself. Yep. <laughs> uh... that, that's what I do. Yeah, it takes a lot of time. <laughs> oh, do you, do you spend a lot of time on it? Uh, I mean, yeah, it comes and goes. Uh, when you release a game, mm-hmm, basically yeah. the next year of your life is <laughs> is just disappears in just trying to make your current game work well on everyone's computer. Um, that sounds a little bit harder than my situation. <laughs> Maybe you just sell way more games, but how does your how does your support work? Do people just email you like when when shit goes bad? Like, <laughs> uh. I mean, there's that route. Um, something. So when when I do my own engine stuff, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Adam Smasher and Flotilla, um, I have a feature called Report a Bug, and okay. basically what that is is that in the pause menu when you press Escape, there's an option called Report a Bug. And you click on it, and then from there it's just a text box, um, and then you type in like whatever problem you're having. It's like, uh, the particle effects, you know, they turn green after 30 seconds. <laughs> um, so then they press enter and then that little email ends up in my email inbox. Okay. Um, do, do a lot of people use that? Yeah. Like I kind of threw it in as on a whim because like, oh, you know, I, I felt my, my theory is that, oh, there's a lot of friction in, you know, yeah, finding absolutely. my email and sending me a message. And so I thought, okay, let's try it out. And it ended up working really well, actually. Um, people send me tons of feedback. They are very proactive in you know, being... And that's what I want. I mean, I want the yeah. game to not break, and I want the game to work yeah. well. Um, and the other side we of that... A, what's that? Oh, I'd say we do a similar thing, but only when the game crashes. Oh, oh right. Yeah, I was going to say that. So. When the game crashes, it uh, sends me a call stack, and it tells me oh, when cool. the game crashes. Um, but yeah, it's 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 incredibly helpful to have that built in, I find. Do you, do you get their email address so you can email them back and follow up with them? I don't. It's a one-way communication thing. Mm, I yeah. felt... so we, uh-huh. we, we, do the, we get their email address so we can follow up with every person who has a crashing game. Oh. This is actually something I'm really proud of. I probably shouldn't gush about too much. But yeah, we, we, we collect their email address so we can follow up with them. And it leads to... Because everybody who's contacting us is having a terrible time because their game just crashed. Right. And this allows us to kind of turn every frown into an upside down, you know? <laughs> it's... It's nice. So, I mean, how do you, what do you send them then? It's like, oh, the game works now. Or 
Happy face. Are we just? Fa- I mean, usually it involves try- fixing the issue, right? Mm. And so a large number of our crashes are actually uh, when uh, Ironclad Tactics was worse because we rolled our own engine using some sort of not not advanced but kind of advanced OpenGL features, mm. and a lot of old like drivers that weren't updated would just crash. Oh. And so we, we had to basically say like update your video drivers. I have a form email that I just send people, but if that doesn't work, they can email me again. And yeah, it works pretty well. Okay. Cool. So, and the cool thing with it only being restricted to crashing is that it, it only, you know, it's only the people who really need it. Although I'm not really shy with my email address in case people want to email me about big stuff. So I'm yeah. sure you're equally easy to find on the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really easy. Cool. Um, let's see. Uh, we're actually almost done. Um, so I want to talk about some little random questions. Mm-hmm. And then I want to talk a little bit about level design because that's kind of your, your thing. So quickly, what's your favorite tool? Not like a power oh. tool, but like software tool. So, so mine is Excel. That's my answer. So, what's yours? Oh, that's tricky. What's my favorite tool? It can be a favorite. It just doesn't have you know. It doesn't have to be the one favorite. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, favorite can be many things. For me, the most mm-hmm. fun one I find is uh, a thing called Cam Studio. And what okay. Cam Studio does is it takes uh, a screenshot of your desktop every X amount of seconds, like 10 seconds or so, whatever you want to set it to. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I do is I then collate all these screenshots together into a time-lapse video. Um, and then it becomes kind of like extra features for my game. Oh, that's cool. Of like the development. So you just kind of yeah. take that and it's, this is how I made this level right. or something. Yeah. So it's kind of, Oh, that's great. It's kind oh, of man. A cute little like easy thing for me to do to kind of give a little peek into how, how things That's really made. cool. It's less tedious than doing like a live stream of the entire development process. Yeah. Like live streams are fun, but they, they take a certain amount of, of energy to do them. Um, so this oh, that's is like really cool. Easy way. That's like a really cheap way to do that. That's one thing I'm terrible at is outreach and trying to show people what we do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. That's really smart. It's like when I started making games, I thought, oh, I'll just make an awesome game and put it out there. Um, it turns out that's not all you need. You need yeah. people to know that you exist. Yeah. Which can be and people different. like it, which surprises yeah. me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they like knowing about what you do and what you're all about. Yeah. Like I can, I can put myself in there. Like when I was at, when I was, um, when I'm a big fan of an artist, I want to know more about them, and I mm, do want yeah, to touch yeah. them. So I could definitely sympathize with that. Cool. Okay. So another question is: uh, Tell me about a time that you totally screwed up, and then what you did to survive it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, for my game Adam Zombie Smasher. Um, so the the version of Adam Zombie Smasher that people are playing now is is basically uh the third rewrite of the game oh wow so the first one was originally for xbox live indie games which <laughs> x plague uh, x plague <laughs> which that was a big thing at that or i i felt it was a big thing at the time and i was like really did you make ten dollars on it <laughs> well i never released it uh oh, okay yeah it's it's in my hard drive um, so you made it for x plague i made it for x plague and it was like okay this is kind of cute this was the big giant one file thing and it was kind <laughs> of a big, big mess and so i realized oh i can never release this it'll just be a support nightmare um so then i made version two which was um which was what you're playing right now except it had this incredibly elaborate um kind of grand strategy component 
where you have this world map of Nuevo Ceres, and you had to kind of ship scientists around. Uh, oh, interesting. Whenever you uh, wiped out, whenever you saved a region from zombies, you would then have the refugees that you rescued, and you would ship the refugees into a new uh, region, and that would increase the population of that region. And then the zombies would be drawn toward regions that had more people oh, in them. interesting. So you could kind of use people as human bait and kind of steer is... the crowd. <laughs> is that why there's still like that map, like the, yeah. the world map component? Because I was a little confused when I played it. I wasn't expecting... <laughs> like the fact that victory depends on what happens there, it, it makes... It, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly and, and so that's that sort of where is. it comes from? That is why the map is there, right. Interesting. Uh, but you ended up taking that out, I'm guessing, because I don't remember that. Right. So it got stripped, the map stuff got stripped down to like 1% of what it was. Uh, how, did, how did you make that call? Uh, I made the call because I had a playtest of some uh, developer friends that I, I trust their judgment a lot. And mm-hmm. They were absolutely miserable, and oh god, they—I mean, the, the the tactical city stuff—they were having a fun time. It was—it was, it was mm-hmm. that stuff was accessible and kind of easy to understand. Um, but the map stuff was just this giant mess of overambitious ideas and kind of unneeded complexity. Um, and so I was like, ah, oh, I spent like three months making this thing. I can't <laughs> dump it out. Are you crazy? Yeah. Uh. And but then, you did. I did. It's better I did eventually. For it. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, I think at that week was Indiecade, which is this event over here in Culver City, which is a bunch of kind of a festival of indie indie games. Um, and there was a board game making workshop, and over there I made a board game version of Adam Zombie Smasher. Um, that was just the city stuff. And uh, I kind of had this revelation that, oh, you know what? The game is kind of fun. Just this part. Why not just ship this part? And no I one think will, that was a good call. No one will ever know about this totally <laughs> broken half of it, except for oh, me. Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, that worked out. Oh, that's good. That's a good story. Okay, so final question. Mm-hmm. Level design tips. So this is especially relevant to me because I don't know anything about level design and I'm really terrible at it. And so tell me, how do I become a better level designer? And what, <laughs> what are some things that I can do to make my levels not suck? Um, yeah, I mean, one, one exercise that I like to do in, in real life is, uh, is when I'm going to a place or if I'm um, kind of going through a building or walking through the airport or getting groceries from the supermarket, um, if I get lost or if I don't know how to do something, it's never my fault. It's always <laughs> the fault of whoever made the place. I mean, that's not true, of course. I'm not really that smart of a person. So, of course, it's my fault. But, I mean... No, this... that is true. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely I agree with you. Like, yeah, I mean, in this exercise, it's always their fault. And so yeah. it becomes a, the, the, the thought exercise is like, how would I change it? How would I change this place? How do I reconfigure it to make it interesting? To make this not happen to anyone ever again. Um, is that a big part of your level design process? Making sure that it kind of leads people the way that you want them to be led. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what type of game you're trying to make. For the games that I generally gravitate toward, it's it's not about figuring out the puzzle of the environment. It's more about you know 
going to this place and having interesting experiences happening to you. Um, so for me, it's about trying to make the, the architecture as frictionless as possible. I mean, if you're making a horror game or something, then it becomes all about the place. But mm. for me, it's more about like, I just want to get you from point A to point B and I don't want you to really think about it. Certainly don't want somebody backtracking and getting, getting Yeah, stuck. right, right. So it's all about trying to make this as, as just invisible as possible. Like if they don't realize what's happening, then that's that's a great sign. Yeah, just like a, a real place, like an airport. You just want people to just not be lost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. yeah, if you have to do signs, then do signs. If you can do like a cool tile pattern that kind of leads people somewhere, then do that. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Do you have any other tips? Um... Yeah, I, I recently gave a talk at GDC about kind of you know, wayfinding in, in um, level design. Um, one thing that I find is, one, one pet peeve of mine, I guess, is that sometimes um, depth perception is really, really difficult to oh, interesting in first-person games. Like platformers, depth perception is incredibly easy and that's why jumping is always a thing in those games because it's really easy to see what distance it is between this platform that platform for first person game like uh i don't know if that tile is is five feet away or 10 feet away because it's it's so difficult to discern depth in first person um, so you're you're old enough that I'm guessing you can remember all the uh, the first person games that made it that had jumping puzzles yeah, back in the day. Yeah, like they don't thing. anymore. That is not a thing. <laughs> and, and I like, when they when they them. do do it, it's all just like they just magnetize you toward the platform. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, we we've we've realized that this isn't working, so let's just find ways to make it work. Interesting. So watching out for things where not having depth perception because it's not real life. I guess with the yeah. Oculus Rift, maybe it'll be different. Yeah, but, uh, for sure. Until then. <laughs> Are you are you excited about VR? I feel that VR will it will be a thing. I, I feel yeah. confident in saying that. I don't I don't know how it's going to manifest itself yeah. or what eventually it's gonna, it's gonna be like, like eventually we'll just be jacked into computers for the the, the entirety <laughs> of our lives. Yeah, right. Where we go inward instead of going out. Because like a lot of people ask me if if Quadrilateral Cowboy is going to have VR support. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh my god, yes. <laughs> and I, I I would love that. That'd be cool. Yeah, it, yeah. It fits the game, but um. But the, the, the thing, the problem is that right now, uh, the game involves a lot of typing, and yeah, so yeah. how do you transition players from mouse and keyboard to typing commands and then put their hand back on the mouse? Um, and right now, it's just the way that VR works right now. It's just not really. I don't know how to do that. Yeah, that's that's an interesting challenge. Not everybody's a touch typist. Yeah, and just like how to put your hand back on the mouse mm, yeah yeah definitely i would need to stand next to you the entire time i think and that's <laughs> it comes with one brand I don't, put I don't, your hand in the right place i don't want to do that yeah it doesn't scale you've already got enough problems with that as is yeah um okay final level design question sure so if you you're just starting to lay out a level mm-hmm. like you have nothing on paper or on the screen, how do you, how do you get started? That's I. That's where I always get completely stuck. Is just like a blank page. How do you start laying out a level? I put down a floor. Um, <laughs> so for me, I I personally tend to not do paper design. Okay. I tend to like I'll do if if the area is really complex, I'll do a quick sketch of it of like this room's gonna be here, this room's gonna be there. Um, but beyond that, I try to get out of that stage as quickly as possible. 
Um, for me, the way I work is that when I see it, when I see the space, when I'm walking around the space in the engine, that's when I start to see what the space can be and what it can do. Um, like if I'm walking, I'll be walking through it and realize, oh, a tunnel that goes under there would work really, really well. And I, the way I'm wired is I'm not able to see those connections um, on like graph paper. I need to actually see it. Um, so when I say like, just put it on the floor, I, that's kind of my way of saying, I just start yeah. building it as quickly as possible. Um, that's that's interesting. It makes sense. I mean, because that allows you to sort of see it as the player will and really get a sense of like the human scale of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know how efficient it is. I end up kind of throwing out a lot of work. Um, so I'm, I'm sure some hybrid version of these two things is probably better. Um, but this is what works for me. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Okay, well, that's all the questions that I have. We're a little bit over an hour now. Um, is there any things you want to talk about really quick before we wrap up? Um, yeah, one quick thing is that I want to say that the um, when you're talking about kind of how to do story stuff in games and how mm-hmm. the approach are that, one thing that I really liked in Infinifactory was the beginning of it. Um, something that I loved about it was that it is it does this cold open. Um, mm, yeah, we were talking a little bit of this in, the, in email. Yeah, and I think that this is something that you know, kind of don't see too many too much in games. And something I for the people who haven't played it yet is that right when you start the game, um there is no main menu and there is no title screen. There is no splash screen. There are no, uh, there's nothing like that. It just dumps you straight into the game and stuff is happening immediately. And there's something that, that just really grabbed me about that. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what was the thought behind that? I mean, cause your previous games have, have been more traditional, no? Yeah, I mean, we, we've had the, the, the privilege of never having to put a million people's logos in front of ours at the start of the game. Uh, so that makes it a lot easier, first off. Um, oh God, I'm trying to think of what inspired it. Honestly, it doesn't even make sense, but one of the things that inspired it was the beginning of Deus Ex Human Revolution, uh-huh. which has, like, publisher screens on the front, but it, it starts with the music right away, and, like, the music is playing while, like, all those logos and shit come up, uh. and it's, like, it's a really good song, and it really gets you into it, like, as soon as it starts, and it feels like the game starts right away, and yes. just sort of, like, that really stuck with me for some weird reason, and, like, that's definitely part of the inspiration. Um, there have probably been other... Th- I can't even remember now. I, was, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to get asked any questions, so I am absolutely <laughs> not prepared for this. But yeah, I mean that's that's the for some reason that's the thing that really sticks out to me the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it I, works I also, really well. I, I, I've also played a bunch of your games, and like the fact that they have such that that strong. I mean, it's really like the quick cuts in Thirty Fights Loving was the thing that like I didn't even understand it when I was playing it. You had to explain it to me later, like at GDC. <laughs> but just like that, it's it's quick cuts, like in you know how like films cut constantly, especially if it's a modern movie where they cut every second. Yeah. But uh, you know that like. The, these ideas of, of the idea of applying these sort of cinematic visual things to movies. I, I don't know anything about film, but it seemed kind of like an appropriate thing. 
Uh, I like the the hard cuts. Like that's why, like in Finifactory, like it, it. I guess it's not like a hard cut, but like it, the screen goes like black after a little bit's happening, and then like the title comes out of it, and you're not expecting it, and and yeah. stuff. And I don't. I It's it's interesting. I, I one of the weird things about doing this is I'm very much a uh, like an amateur at everything that I do, and so the best I can do is sort of look at stuff and be like, "That's cool. I want to copy that." <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just copying things that I like. Well, I mean, you say that, but I mean, you've. Yeah, there's a little games. bit of synthesis going on somewhere, but <laughs> you've been making these for a while now. Yeah, you ship a number of titles. Yes, but I mean, I guess I kind of feel that you know you're still figuring things out, which yeah. which I'm sure I feel like I'm always figuring stuff out. Like right. it's, I'm I'm going to be an amateur for the rest of my right. life. That's right. okay. That's that's the fun part of being a, a small development studio. I think. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Well, we'll spare our listeners from this turning into a two-hour podcast. Uh, it was really great having you on. Thank you so much. Cool. Uh, this was Brandon Chung of Blendo Games. When's Quadrilateral Cowboy coming out, and how can uh, people get it? It'll be on Steam and at BlendoGames.com. Um, I'm intending to ship it in 2015. Awesome. That's this year. Yeah, that's this year. <laughs> that's exciting. Cool. Well, I look forward to it, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on. All right. Thanks, Zach. Okay. See ya. Bye.